Hey there, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Matt Levine My Generation podcast, currently sponsored by no one. If you own a business or have a business in mind that would love to be my sponsor, please reach out. Today's episode is with, of course, my close friend and co-host Noah Levy, as well as Bloomberg White House correspondent Jordan Fabian. We discuss the future of journalism, being in such close proximity with the president, and the differences of reporting about the Obama administration versus the Trump administration, and plenty more. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe and tell all your friends about the Matt Levine Migination Podcast. Make sure to also listen to past episodes too. Thanks and enjoy. Hey, Jordan. Uh, Noah, this is our fifth episode of the Matt Levine My Generation podcast. Uh, Jordan, how are you doing? Doing well. How about you guys? We're doing well. Uh, Noah, you got any big plans? No, nothing much. You know, state's reopening soon, hopefully quicker than expected. Yeah, let's get back to it. Yeah. So uh, let's go right into things here. So Jordan, you're a political correspondent for Bloomberg News. Uh, tell us a little bit Tell us a little bit about your background. How'd you get into journalism? And uh, how'd you first land the job at the Hill as a White House correspondent? Well, I was always interested in politics growing up. I think the first big political story that I really got into was the Bill Clinton impeachment in uh, 1998. And uh, that really piqued my interest. And I was always a political junkie. And when I was in college, I was writing for a student newspaper and doing some radio commentary on politics. And I didn't really know in college what I wanted to do as a career when I first started out, but I really enjoyed doing media. And uh, fortunately, I was able to get a fellowship at the Hill after, right after graduating. So I went uh, straight from a uh, senior year of college in Ithaca, New York at Cornell University uh, to working in covering political journalism, which was in 2009, and there was a lot going on. There was uh, the Obamacare debate. There was the uh, the financial collapse, the fallout from that, and mm-hmm. it was a bit of a stressful time. Uh, it's sort of like now because uh, right when I graduated, I wasn't really even sure if the job was going to be there until I walked in the front door at the Hill because uh, yeah. there was all that financial uncertainty. So, uh, but fortunately, everything worked out. Were you were you worried at the time that uh, the job market was pretty much like? there were no jobs out there when you graduated? Were you worried about that? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, I was, I was really fortunate to, um, to get the job that I got and to, and to stick with it and, and the fact that it, it didn't go away because of uh, financial, uh, the financial collapse. But I, you know, I know that the, the newspaper industry in general was really, really hit hard by that collapse. There were a lot of job cuts. Uh, there was a lot of cutbacks on, on uh, you know, even content like advertising, Etc. So it was a really tough time for the media industry, and so that was always a concern in the back of my mind that uh, it could go south. So immediately in 2009, you got the you got the fellowship with the Hill. What what were the types of things that you were doing there? Well, it, it was it's interesting because when I first started out, you know, Twitter was first becoming a thing uh, in politics. I think Twitter started around 2007, mm-hmm. and at the time, you know. The, it was that was like when politicians really started to adopt it, but it was very slow to begin with, and there's only maybe a handful of members. And my first assignment was to kind of cover uh, the politicians who were on Twitter. We even had a separate blog set up uh, to just cover politicians' tweets. But I ended up doing some 
broader stories off of that because there were a lot of questions about the legality of politicians tweeting and there's this legal separation between what you can say in your official capacity as a member of Congress versus a political candidate. And so there were these like little inside baseball things that we really specialized at at the Hill, but I kind of seized on that opportunity to write some broader stories and that kind of built some trust with the editors. And then I was able to cover some bigger stories like I was mentioning Obamacare, the midterm elections in 2010, and some of the ethics trials that were going on with uh, some members of Congress at the time. And going back to your comments on Twitter, uh, our current president, I think he's probably used that platform the most out of, out of any president and any politician. So do you think future presidents are going to continue to use social media platforms the way he is currently doing it? Yeah, yeah, I think they will. Uh, there's been this concerted push. I mean, really even starting with George W. Bush, but uh, really accelerated under Barack Obama to try to, quote unquote, get around the filter of the media. And the social media tools are a way for them to do that. And, you know, that's, you know, we, we, we would obviously love for politicians to continue to engage with the media, but, you know, they, they feel like they're treated unfairly. And they think that, you know, the Trump has said publicly that he feels this is a way to get around the media and talk directly to the American public and his supporters. And I would expect whoever the next president is after Trump to do, do many things differently than how Trump has governed. But one thing I could envision staying is, is the use of social media and using that to engage with their supporters, uh, fire up their base and, and, uh, and you know, make policy announcements. Maybe not to the unscripted, uh, really kind of chaotic way that Trump uses the platform, but uh, to continue using it in some capacity. And pretty much all presidents, you know, they're going to spin the truth and they're going to exaggerate some things. But the Trump administration is definitely kind of on another level with that. So how is how is that making your job harder? Well, it's, it's certainly a challenge uh, to cover I mean, any administration, this administration, uh, particularly the, you know, the, the, the amount of times that they will, you know, make false statements and things like that. And, you know, I think there's there's a couple of approaches um, you know, people have, some people in the press room have sort of bluntly called, try to call them out and, and confront them on, on certain things. Um, I think the approach that, that I use and, and we use is to sort of point out that, you know, here's why this statement is inaccurate and then, and then let the reader decide. So, mm -hmm. you know, if Trump says, you know, the sky is yellow, for example, we can say, well, the sky is blue and you know, yeah. <laughs> so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, but you know, it, it's so it's you sort of have to be vigilant, and um, you know, it, I think it helps having experience on the beat because you remember all these things that he said and how certain things he said might contradict things he said in the past or or be inaccurate or or misrepresenting something that say you know President Obama did uh, because you know I have the experience I have the experience of covering him as well. Yeah, and going back to when you first really began to uh, cover on on what the White House in 2015, were there any reporters or colleagues of yours who kind of took you under your wing, kind of mentored you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I mean, there were certainly some of the, uh, some of the elder statesmen at the Hill, but also on the White House beat in general. Um, you know, there are some, there, there are people who've covered, you know, presidents going back to Gerald Ford there. So, you know, taking those kind of people, like one example is a guy, a guy sat in the basement, the White House press basement uh, next to a uh, guy named George Condon, 
who writes for the National Journal, uh, great guy, um, sort of an unofficial historian of the White House Correspondents Association, uh, sort of, uh, you know, guy who I would consider uh, something of a mentor. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there are people like that around and you know, just being in the White House was a great opportunity to kind of pick their brain and um, gain some knowledge and, and insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so like, what is it like to be like a reporter at the White House, like in close proximity with the president of the United States, one of the most powerful people in the world? Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is like on a a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, you always have to be on your toes, especially with this president, because he he tends to announce things on a whim. And uh, whereas before, you know, there'd be stories that broke and you would break stories and that would sort of shake things up. And it was it's always been an intense beat. But this, this is a particularly tense pace. And so you always have to be ready, even if something isn't, you know, we get a public schedule every day of what the president's doing. But certain, a lot of times he'll bring you into an event that's, uh, you know, not on the schedule and you have to be ready for that. Um, yeah, this president loves, you know, as much as he kind of hates, uh, you know, he'll, he'll talk trash about the press, I guess, and sort of say, you know, the press is the enemy of the people. He does enjoy engaging with reporters. Um, so he will often times at the end of events or at the beginning of events take questions from us. And so, you know, I always try to have a list of questions ready of what we want to ask him. And you, know, you have that opportunity to just get right in front of him and ask him, you know, whatever you want on the news of the day, which, which can certainly be valuable. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it, you, you sort of have to be on constant alert for that and just be prepared for any scenario. And, um, you know, the travel too is something that's, uh, a good benefit you know we get to travel all over the world with the president i was with him in india uh, right before uh this the pandemic hit and uh you know that was a certainly an exciting trip to cover and you get sort of get to see how he works with foreign leaders and things like that is it does is he willing to open up to you when when you're asking him questions up front i mean i, I would say that this president uh he, he sort of is who he is uh even you know, you talk to him in private, it's not that much different than how he is in public. He's sort of what you see is what you get. So I, w- I wouldn't say he's holding anything back from the, from people on, in terms of, you know, there are certain things he would say off the record that maybe he wouldn't say on the record, but most of what he's saying is in private is what he's saying in public. And uh, so it's, you, you sort of just get what he's thinking and what's on his mind all the time. And you asked me about Twitter earlier, and that's sort of an unprecedented thing is, you know, President Obama used Twitter, but it was kind of written by his dates and, you know, you go, going through all this approval process. And with, with this president, you get this stream of consciousness of whatever is on his mind and, you know, whatever he might be watching on television in real time, which is something that the American people and media have never really had before. And so how has that affected your job? And, and what do you do differently on a daily basis that you weren't doing during the Obama years? Um, again, I, I just think it's being ready for anything that might happen. And, and, uh, you know, a good example is I was, uh, the day that, that J- James Comey got fired as FBI director, I had, I'd worked from home in the morning and I was, I was like cooking this, you know, gravy that was going to take all day. This like, this like red sauce. And, <laughs> and so I was getting ready to go home and like finish the cooking and, and like, right as that was happening, Comey got fired. And so I had to like call, I had to like, you know, say, all right, well, that's, that's done. Like, I can't, I can't make that. That has to come off the stove. And so you just kind of drop everything you're doing and, and uh, have to like rush to cover 
uh, something that might be, uh, you know, just a tectonic political story. And, and I think that's kind of the, the main thing is like, there's so many huge, tremendous stories in this era, and then they just get layered over by more huge, tremendous stories. And that's something that the pace and the intensity of this is something that we haven't seen before. But like when someone, when someone huge gets fired and you have to drop everything, are you upset about that? Or is that just one of your favorite parts of the job keeps you on your toes, makes you feel alive? It's a, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you have to be a bit of an adrenaline junkie to want to do this job and have to be willing to say, okay, I had a plan and then that plan just got blown up and now I have to go do something else. Um, and I think like the Mike Tyson quote I love is everyone has a plan, plan until they get punched in the mouth. And so yeah. <laughs> that's sort of how this, this, this job is in, in a way. But you, you, you just have to roll with the punches and, and be willing to, to do that. And of course, like, it, you know, there's some personal inconveniences, but you, you get to have a front, seat, front row seat to history and see this all happening up close. And before you, before you took this job as a White House correspondent, did you know what you were in for? Or was this kind of like a rude awakening for you? I, I think I knew it was going to be an intense job, but it, I didn't really know exactly everything to expect. And, and it certainly there was an adjustment period. I think it took, it took like a good year for me to really figure out the daily rhythms of, of everything and figure out the best way to go about doing the job. It's definitely a learning curve and you, you have to, you know, I think in this job, you really have to learn by doing. Uh, yeah. There's no, there's no class that can really prepare you for how to cover the white house. And so, uh, you know, like the up close experiences, it's just super valuable. Do you have an example that comes to mind of like a just complete blunder uh, that you had as a rookie? Um, I don't know, like a blunder, but I, I just, it's hard to think back, but there are certain things that you would just miss, I guess, that, you know, a more experienced reporter would, would pick up on. Mm -hmm. um, there are little nuances of, of language that they use in press releases and things like that, um, that you just kind of, pick up on and uh yeah I, so so again i, I don't know if there, there's like a thing that um it's hard to think of something that i, I like completely missed i mean thankfully i haven't had like a huge <laughs> thing where i've had to like retract a story or anything like that i don't think that's that's really happened to me but um there's been moments where you know you just think like what am i doing <laughs> but but th those now are kind of like few and far between mm -hmm. You, you talked about rolling with the punches. Um, so the whole coronavirus thing, how, how has that affected your job and how has it changed how you do your job? That's a great question. It's, it's really changed the way, uh, just the day-to-day -day for us at the White House. Um, all the reporters who come in now have to, uh, they have to get screened at the front gate with a, with a thermometer for if your temperature's too high, you're not allowed to come in. They ask you if you've had any coronavirus symptoms. Uh, recently, the White House has been administering coronavirus tests every day for the press, so that you know if you're in close proximity to the White House, they know whether you know, you're. Excuse me, uh, close proximity to the president, they know whether you've tested you know positive. Yeah, tested positive. You have to go home, obviously. Um, you, there's you know they they try to do social distancing in in the press room where you know there are fewer reporters in there now and we're sitting further apart. And so, you know, and then when you go in yourself, you're thinking, okay, you know, I touched the door handle, I, I ought to, you know, use hand sanitizer. There's all these like little things that you have to think about. Um, and it, it certainly has uh, 
change the, the atmosphere there. But, um, you know, thankfully they're, you know, I think for the most part, they've tried to, uh, you know, have some precautions for, for us. And when you came back from India, you said that it was right before COVID hit. Were, was anyone worried about like uh, getting COVID in, in India or? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I remember it was a, uh, you know, at the time, you know, we, I, we started covering that story back in January. So we, we it was on our radar. And there were, at the time, there were not a whole lot of reported cases in India. But I think, you know, it, it wasn't like now. I mean, it, as you remember, it changed so rapidly. I mean, in March, the, the scope of the pandemic really mm-hmm. became apparent. So uh, at the time, it wasn't like that. I think it was more viewed as a problem. Oh, there's some problems in China. There's some problems in Europe. But it hasn't reached these certain places. So, um, you know, it, it was something that everyone was thinking about, but not really. Um, I think maybe at that time, the first U.S. case had happened. It t- I, I think it made the, the one in Washington State, but I'm not 100% confident. But I, I do remember on that trip that uh, there, there was a, a CDC official who really said that the, she gave the stark quote, you can look it up, um, that, you know, the U.S. is not prepared and we need to start shutting things down. And at the tail end of that trip, it's been reported that maybe in the New York Times or elsewhere that, you know, the president was really furious and was stewing on the flight back about mm-hmm. that quote. And I was, I was on the flight back, but he didn't come back to see us <laughs> and talk to us on that. So we don't really, I don't have a firsthand account of how he felt that day. And going back to that experience of flying on Air Force One, what is it, what is it like to fly on such a, I guess, prestigious plane? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the privileges of the job and, um, you know, I, I sort of say to people who, you know, considering uh, applying for the White House beat or, or working here that I think like the minute that it become, you become jaded walking through the White House gates or stepping out onto the tarmac and Andrews Air Force Bay and sit onto Air Force One, it's time to do something else. And, you know, even after covering this beat for five years, it's still, you know, privilege, it still feels like a privilege to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and you sort of feel that sense of, awe in a way that okay yeah you're on you're on this plane you're in the big leagues this is it and uh you know it's it's uh again but you know the the president you know like again like loves to engage with us he'll often come back to the press cabin and talk to us so even even on the plane you always have to be ready for news to break Mm -hmm. um you know i've I've been on flights where he's made news we've had to like phone the ground phone to our editors on the ground yeah (laughs) but using a special phone to get the news out so it's it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a privilege, but it's also, you know, a job. You have to be ready to do your job. Do you think President Trump enjoys the chaos, enjoys that aspect of kind of breaking the news to you when you guys are least expecting it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to get inside of his head, but, it, you know, he does seem to thrive on, on controlling the, the interactions with us. I mean, I think that's why you see him you know, talking to us underneath the helicopter and, and things like that, mm-hmm. as opposed to less, you know, he does fewer formal press conferences because that sort of gets, you know, he's kind of in control of that interaction. You know, it's a little, it's a little chaotic for us. Um, you know, he can, he can look like he's in control and, um, you know, that's, uh, to, you know, to his advantage in, in some ways. So, um, you mm-hmm. know, I, I don't, again, so I, I couldn't speak to whether he, you know, thrive, like enjoys the chaos, but he does like to sort of control the way that he talks to us. Yeah. And do you think, do you find it hard to not have a bias while reporting or reporting on the beat? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's this debate going on right now um, in the media about, you know, it, it's in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing and these protests about whether, 
you know, reporters need to be more activists or not. Um, you know, I, it's a, it's an interesting question. And, uh, but I think that, you know, just speaking for myself, you know, we, we try to just give, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like impartial and like unbiased or, you know, it's just basically like the straight news, like you can get, you can deliver straight news, but also still hold the powerful to account. And I think that's what I try to do every day. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Well, like I said, you know, the, before when you asked me about, you know, the president making false statements, you know, trying to call that out, uh, trying to call out ways that, you know, he's either contracted himself, <clears throat> excuse me, or his aides, for example. And then, you know, if he makes a policy announcement, try to really explain what that would actually do and how mm-hmm. it, would, it would affect Americans. Uh, you know, there's something, sometimes he, announced the policy and the way he explained it is actually a lot further a lot broader or you know not really what the policy is mm-hmm. uh you know thinking back to the uh the social media executive order he recently did he kind of explained it in a sort of a grander way than uh it actually appeared on paper so trying to take that into account too and and you know see how his rhetoric actually measures up to the actions is a mm-hmm. way to do that um you want to get to the 2020 election so okay we'll talk about do you, do you think there's a, a sense of restlessness um and worry inside the trump administration and the campaign team right now yeah i mean we, we've reported on uh there's certainly concern about uh where the president's political standing is uh, they've done some internal polling that shows him a disadvantage to joe biden not only nationally but in battleground states and um you know there's some concern about how the president is handled you know, the concern internally about, uh, you know, how he's handled the protests uh, surrounding George Floyd's death, how he's handled the coronavirus pandemic. And so, you know, we're seeing this week the president trying to get back on track with some of these roundtables he's doing with uh, on, on criminal justice and police issues. But, you, you know, he's still hammering on that law and order message. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think he's been urged both publicly and privately by advisors to try to give more of a message on, on racial injustice and, and unity. Uh, you know, I think his advisors would argue that he has done that, but still there are some people on his team and on Capitol Hill who would like to see him do a whole lot more than he's, he's already done. And when it comes to, because you're referring to like advisors, when it comes to like building sources within his administration, there's been a ton of, there's been a ton of turnover. Has it been, has it been more difficult to build those connections and, find out what is being said internally yeah i mean it's certainly it's certainly um you know challenging the amount of turnover you know, you can cultivate a source and the person can be out the out the door uh, you know a week later and so you know it's just a constant effort to try to form relationships and and gain the trust of people to to uh you know talk to you so yeah it's uh it's been it's a challenge but i think all of us we should sort of try our best and, uh, and, you know, and sometimes those former people, you know, can still know things. And, you know, if you keep a relationship with those people, they, they can still be uh, helpful resources. Mm-hmm. I, and I just want to go back to the 2020 election for a second, mm-hmm. because in our first episode, we spoke with a graduating senior who is, uh, who is part of the Green Party and kind of sees Trump and Biden in a, in a similar boat as far as what they believe in. And not getting too political here, but how do you think the 2020 election will unfold? And do you think that a lot of progressive Democrats will be wary of voting for Joe Biden? 
Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think that's a, that's a major question for Democrats is how they can sort of harness that, that progressive energy um, the, the, in the, the opposition, opposition to Trump um, as, a, as a positive for Joe Biden. And I think this is a question that confronts every candidate, which is, you know, you can present the message that's against someone, but you really have to ultimately convince voters to come out to vote for you with some sort of positive message about why they should do that. And I think you've seen Joe Biden take some you know, efforts to appeal to some of the more progressive elements of the base. You know, he's, he's attracted Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to become uh, sort of an outside advisor to the campaign, and he's trying to solicit advice from those kind of people. And, and whether that will work, you know, we'll have to see. Um, I mean, there, you know, it, it's, it's obvious there's a lot of anti-Trump energy on the left, but, but again, you know, whether the, the, vice pres- the former vice president can sort of harness that and, and persuade those people that he's the answer, uh, I think remains to be seen. And so when it comes to the things that you're reporting and your other colleagues are reporting at Bloomberg News currently, what elements of the 2020 election are you focusing on? I mean, obviously, a big po- focus for us is, is Trump's re-election campaign. So, you know, we're, we're focusing on how, you know, the, the, again, the president is trying to recover from this political hole that he's in is, is a major story for us right now. Um, you know, we have a campaign team that, that covers sort of the broader sort of sweep of and the broader sort of electoral environment. Um, we have members of our team who are really focused on the Trump re-election in particular, and are in touch with the campaign officials and things like that. And, and of course, you know, we're we're you know when the president gets back out on the road to do political rallies, we'll be traveling with him to those too, and to see how he's sort of you know th- those those were kind of like the central pillar of his re-election campaign, those rallies, mm-hmm. and those have been gone now for more than three months. So it'll be interesting to see how those come back together, uh, you know, after you know, under, you know, coronavirus and where, you know, how, how many people want to come out and see him. Yeah. And speaking about the campaign rally, his announcement uh, for Tulsa, Oklahoma on June 19th, that's received a lot of criticism in the press, a lot of scrutiny. Uh, What do you think about his choice of his, his setting and also the date of the rally? And what you you said, it certainly caused a, a huge stir and, uh, prompted some more criticism that he's not really capturing the, the moment we're in uh, by choosing that date in that place. Uh, that, yeah, but the president said, I think he addressed this on, in the Fox News interview just today, that saying that, well, it's a celebration, you know, Juneteenth is a celebration and our rallies are a celebration. And, you know, it's not clear to me that it was deliberate, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, certainly the, the optics of that choice have gained notice on the Trump campaign and they're trying to, you know, explain why they, they chose that date in that place. And has any, has any of the advisors you're in touch with, have they said anything noteworthy about that? Um, I mean, just beyond, I mean, essentially what I just told you is kind of what their message has been. Um, <clears throat> I don't think there's been, you know, a whole lot of hand-wringing about it. Uh, I think they're mm-hmm. sort of focused on some of the bigger picture issues. But, um, you know, certainly it's just another example of how uh, they're getting scrutiny over their yeah. response to, to all this. Uh, okay. Um, I want to ask a question. Uh, you had an incident like two years ago, 2018, um, at a press conference at the White House. Sarah Sanders tried to move on from another reporter to come to you. 
and then you deferred back to the other reporter who seemed unhappy that she was being passed on. You want to go into that situation a little bit? And then, um, yeah, um, yeah, you know, that, that was, um, that, that was an interesting moment. Um, you know, Sarah had sort of tried to limit everyone to one question um, at, at the time. And, uh, you know, she, the other reporter is Hallie Jackson, NBC News. Um, she wasn't uh, answering the question really, and, and Hallie kept re-asking it. And, you know, I just thought that, I mean, Hallie, before, before Sarah moved on to me, that you know, Hallie should have the opportunity to have her question answered. Um, I just viewed it as more professional courtesy than anything else. I wasn't trying to make any kind of like broad statement about it, but um, it certainly caught some attention. You know, I think that, you know, at the time there was uh, this discussion about whether the press conf the press corps sort of unify against the White House. And I mean, that's not I, like, that's not what was going through my mind at all. It was just a matter of, you know, this reporter is asking a question. I don't think it would be appropriate for me to, sort of cut off the line of questioning before, you know, Hallie got her question answered. And, you know, other reporters have done it differently too. I mean, there's some, some reporters, I, I had an instance um, a few months ago where I asked the president a question about China and he didn't really answer my question. And then later on in the press conference, Caitlin Collins of CNN sort of re-asked my question for me and she didn't get much more out of Trump, but he sort of answered a little more. So it's another way that I think reporters have tried to, help one another out and, and get answers. So um, again, I just kind of viewed it as something that, you know, I, I would hope that another reporter would do for me and try to just pay respect and professional courtesy to one of my colleagues. Yeah, in, in that interview with CNN that you had about it, you, you mentioned you'd hope it'd be paid forward to you. Has there been any other instances where it's been paid forward, you felt like? Yeah, I mean, I think the Caitlin Collins one was like the, the main one that stuck out to me. Um, I, I was very thankful that she helped re-ask that, but uh, I mean, I'm sure there've been, it's, there's been so many press conferences and I'm sure there've been other times, but um, you know, that someone will try to re-ask my question or I've done, tried, tried to do the same. And um, you know, one, one good thing about working in the White House is that it's a competitive environment. I mean, we're all trying to compete with each other for scoops and to get ahead of our, our competitors, but um, everyone there for the most part is really collegial and, and uh, is, is good to work with and um, it's a supportive environment too. So um, that's a nice thing about, about being there. And I just wanna go back to, you said you used the word press, uh, the phrase press unity. Do you feel like, especially for this administration, considering President Trump has publicly uh, been very critical of the press, do you feel that there is a deeper sense of the press unity and how so? Um, I, it's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure, <clears throat> excuse me, that, uh, I mean, I, I still think, you know, every, you know, news outlet has their own, you know, way of doing business and, and, and things like that. I mean, like I was saying, you know, the, the collegial environment at the White House as, um, I mean, it's always been there. I think it's still been there under Trump. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I don't know, I, I won't say that, you know, I, I would just say like everyone is just trying for the most, like, you know, for the most part is just trying to do their job. And that's all most of us want to do is just do our job. And um, I don't think that the press should or is trying to become an advocacy group against the president. I mean, that's our role. Um, our role is to, again, you know, report on, on the, on the presidency and, and hold the powerful accountable and, 
I think for the most part, again, that's what we're all trying to do. So, I mean, as far as unity and that purpose, I would say that, sure. I mean, yeah, like the, like most outlets are, are trying to do that. And even with print journalism kind of starting to become more obsolete, do you think there's always going to be a need for holding the powerful accountable in say 30, 40 years? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, one of these things that I think is, you know, key. I mean, that's, that's the whole reason we're in this business. Um, and you know, the minute that goes away, it's a, it's a moment of reckoning for journalism. So mm -hmm. I hope it doesn't go away. And I hope that, you know, people that, you know, continue to do their jobs with that mission in mind and whether it's through, you know, a different medium than print journalism. I mean, I'm, I'm a big advocate of print. I still think there's a place for print. I think that, you know, as a medium, it provides, you get to provide a lot of context and, and explanation. And, you know, I think good writing is, there's no better way to hold someone accountable. Um, but, uh, but, e but even if it's through, you know, podcasts or uh, social media, that people sort of continue to uh, do their job with that, that mission in mind. And so I just want to kind of transition into uh, when you decided to move on from the Hill and you went to Bloomberg. Uh, tell me about that transition and was it was it hard for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, yeah, it was hard to leave the Hill. Uh, it was a great place to work. I had some great colleagues there, a lot of lifelong friends. Bloomberg is a great opportunity and I feel like I couldn't pass it up and it's a, mm -hmm. it's a great place to work. And I uh, couldn't say more great things about the folks on my team. Uh, the opportunity it's given me to, you know, travel the world with the president and, and be up close and personal every day. You know, we're wire service. That means we're around him every day. At least one member of our team is. So it's just a great um, opportunity. And uh, so far, it's been, it's been great. And uh, so uh, I don't, uh, you know, I, I've, I think I, I made a great decision. Yeah. Yeah. And what were you... Was there something you were going to be doing differently at Bloomberg than you were going to be at the Hill? Were you taking on a larger role? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, being at a Newswire is, is a little bit different than being at a, at a print uh, outlet. You know, you're, you know, the, the Hill, it was, but the Hill was good practice because we, you know, we covered so much and we're writing so much. And so you're, you're sort of prepared for that fast pace and that quick, you know, the need to get stuff out super quickly. Um, so the being, that was good training to be, uh, and Newswire, where that's kind of the, the name of the game, is getting the news fastest, accurate, and first. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, but you know, it, <clears throat> a lot of what we're doing is, is you know, a lot of the, the skills, I guess, are similar, where it's like news judgment and good writing and fast writing. And, and so that's a lot of what, we're, what I'm doing every day. And then also trying to take a step back once in a while to write something larger about the bigger picture. And of course, uh, you know, breaking news when we can. And has Bloomberg allowed you to write the more larger bigger picture feature story that you wanted to yeah oh yeah of course yeah of course i mean that's something that yeah i just had one on on monday um about you know the president uh trying to tie joe biden to the defund the police movement mm -hmm. um that was uh something i was able to take a sort of a full day and you know wrap everything together so uh, it, yeah i mean it's a great thing because you can do you know the, there's opportunities to do a lot i mean we have tv uh, we have our radio network, so we can do those things as well. So it's just a, it's a, it's a great place with a lot of different facets. Mm -hmm. I just want to go back to when it comes to asking questions in like a public setting, specifically a press briefing. 
was was it trial and error for you and were there like questions in the beginning that you that like you wished like you structured better yeah of course i mean that, that it's there's an, there's an art to asking those kind of questions because i mean you want to try to ask a question that will elicit a, a good response not just a question that you know is going to be kind of like a statement of you know you know why are you you know like you sort of could i mean you you want to be confrontational but you also want to be confrontational with the point of of trying to get them to answer so uh trying to craft questions in that way uh is certainly something that takes time and experience so um that's something i've learned over the years on the beat and has it been has it taken you a lot of time to kind of transition from the obama administration to the trump administration was there a different type of question that you could ask to develop a response from one administration versus the other? Uh, okay, so I, yeah, I, again, I, I would just say that you know it takes it takes practice to sort of get the question, the type of question right for the different type of leader. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with with Trump, I think I, I found that it's like the best way to, is to ask him about something just specific. I think it's true of all politicians, but but definitely Trump is you want to try to nail him down on something specific and not just ask some like broad, open-ended question that's gonna allow him to say whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, it's, it's always like a good cue to take from people who have covered Trump for a long time, you know, people who covered him from his real estate career and, and from the campaign. You know, there's certainly a lot of those kind of people on the beat too, in addition to people who've been in the White House for a long time. So you just sort of watch and learn and listen and try yourself and, and get the best result. Hmm. So um, many people on the right make claims of fake news does that make your job more difficult in any way? No, I mean, I'd say, you know, obviously, you know, we would hope that, you know, people sort of read the coverage and sort of see that I think, you know, people, most people give everyone a fair shake, but uh, we just, you know, I, we don't, I don't, speaking personally, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I, I just kind of let it roll off my shoulder and just, just keep doing my job. I mean, you have to have a thick skin in this business. You know, I've had, I've had, you know, press flax and other people yell at me and, you know, say bad things about my stories and internet commenters and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I don't think you can succeed if you take it to heart. You just have to, I mean, obviously recognize legitimate criticism where it's due and, and you know, read your complaints and address those in a legitimate way when it's legitimate. But, you know, as far as the ad hoc stuff, you know, you can't let it affect you and you just got to have the gumption to keep doing what you're doing. And was it hard for you to kind of hear the criticism in the beginning? I mean, it was certainly striking. It's, it's, uh, you, you know, I, I don't, I think all politicians have complained about the media coverage they get. Uh, that's, that's true for Obama as well as, you know, Bush. And, you know, as I was saying before, other politicians have tried to go around the media to get their message out, but I don't think you've had a, a you know, president or a presidential candidate who, has sort of had a concerted effort to try to delegitimize the news media at large. Um, it's certainly not something that that we want. You know, we it's it. I don't think it's something that's good for our industry. Even though you know the president likes to claim that you know the, the conflict is is good for the industry, and you know while it might get more eyeballs, I think you know reader trust is important, and you know keeping that is important. So, kind of go on about was it was it hard? difficult for you when you began to hear criticism about your stories? I, 
I mean, I, I think that, you know, we, we just try to do our job to the best of our ability and in the most professional way we can. Um, I, I'd say all, you know, every politician has complained about the media coverage going, you know, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, mm -hmm. and, you know, hasn't been a, a president who hasn't been complaining about uh, the media coverage he's getting, but we haven't seen someone on a wholesale basis try to delegitimize you know, the news media like Trump has, and it certainly has, has some consequences. And, you know, I think that's why it's, you know, so important for us to do our job to the best of our professional ability to demonstrate that, you know, we are putting out, you know, real news and, and yeah. we're doing it in a fair and professional way. And with that said, I just feel like it's so difficult to not have a bias when reporting, because especially if, if the president is going to delegitimize the news that you're putting out, I just, I don't know, I'd find it tough to, to kind of stay neutral in those situations. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a question of, again, like just staying professional and, um, you know, sort of the best way, like, like I said, to prove that we're not fake news is to turn out real news and to turn out, you know, good, well, professionally done, you know, tough but fair coverage. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, fighting, fighting that back with rhetoric only gets you so far. Uh, you know, asserting that you, you know, you are not the enemy of the people is, is only going to get you so far. And, you know, I, I don't think you want to set up a, a situation where the, you know, the press is like the quote unquote opposition party. Um, that's not what we are. That's not our mission. Again, our mission is to hold the power to account no matter, you know, who the power is, what party the power is in and, uh, and, and, and do our job in a fair and professional way. And, you know, doing sort of, again, like doing, doing your job is just the best antidote to that. Yeah. With, with all that said, how much say do higher ups have on a, any specific story? Or is it I mean, of course, like every every uh, publication you work at, it's an editing process. I mean, unless you're working for a blog, you're not publishing um, stuff you know directly to a website, uh, you know, without some kind of editorial oversight. So you know, there's always every place I work, there's always you know, you can pitch a story and you know, you talk about it with the editors and then you report it out. And, you know, it goes through a round of edits and it goes up or, you know, editors sort of assign you a story and then you go through the same uh, process. And so, I mean, there's always that, that give and take between editors and reporters. And, you know, for the most part, it, I found that, it, you, know, it, you know, of course there's going to be disagreements, but uh, you know, it, it will often turn out the, the best possible product. Do you think that process favors the reporter or the, the company producing the journalism? I mean, I, I think ultimately it's, I mean, in, in most cases, you know, hopefully it's both, uh, you know, you, you, you have, you have good journalism and, you know, you, you, you know, if you have a company that supports you and, you know, supports your journalism, it's going to give you a good platform with millions of readers and, mm -hmm. and, you know, the money and, uh, and, uh, logistical, you know, know-how know to try to get these stories done. And for the you know, and for and for the the, the company, you know, good reporters are gonna lend that company credibility and and you know make sure that people uh, make that a, a news destination for themselves. So, um, you know, in an ideal situation, it's it's a it's a win win proposition. Mm -hmm. And going down the the road about journalism and the future of it, where do you see journalism going in five years? What do you think will be the state and how 
readers will be learning about their news? I mean, one thing that uh, I'm actually concerned about is the number of job cuts we're seeing in the news industry. And it's been especially hard on, on local journalism. And uh, I hope that new lo local news organizations find a way to operate and to uh, report in a way that's financially sustainable because, you know, we need, uh, you know, the country needs, I think, good local journalism. I mean, look at the Minneapolis Star Tribune's coverage of, of what's been going on in Minneapolis with the police. I mean, it provides, you can understand how this culminated, sadly, unfortunately, tragically, in the George Floyd killing, uh, mm -hmm. just knowing, you know, I, no reader outside of Minnesota or in Minnesota for that matter would know that if it wasn't for the reporting of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. You, you need those local outlets to focus on that sort of thing. I mean, you can't just have you know, as much as I love covering the White House, you can't have every journalist working in Washington and New York. You need people all over the country and all over the world covering what's going on to give people an idea of what's happening in their communities. And so, um, you know, that's a trend that's concerning to me. And, and I hope that, again, um, there's some way you can find out a way to um, make this a sustainable venture because the country desperately needs it. And as the future generation continues to grow older, do you think, because a lot of this generation, they're pretty much getting all their news off of BuzzFeed, Instagram, just seeing the headlines. Do you see journalism going in that direction of just becoming a, a headline? Yeah, pretty much a headlines type of uh, news? Yeah, I mean, I, so I'm, I'm like a little conflicted on this because on one hand, I think it's good that, you know, companies like that and uh, are, are making uh, – younger people, uh, you know, getting them interested in news and, and using that as, as a hook to draw them in. But I would hope that uh, readers would take it upon themselves to learn more and read more and more in depth and beyond the headline about the subjects they're watching and reading about. Because a lot of times there's, it's not a black and white situation and there's nuance to these situations uh that are in the news and uh you know an, an informed reader is is an informed voter and is an informed an informed citizen and i think you're just going to make better decisions and more informed decisions if you sort of go beyond the headlines so again i think it's i'm, I'm not i don't think it's a bad thing that uh you know there's like buzzfeed and, and instagram and tiktok are kind of like getting into the news like i see the washington post now as a tiktok account which is like sort of amazing to me uh but uh you know again like i hope that is a gateway to uh, broader and more in-depth coverage and not just the, the place where people are stopping. But say it becomes that place where people are just stopping. How is, how is yourself and how is Bloomberg kind of preparing for that change? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're uh, on, you know, we have social media presence as well. I mean, while our stuff's going out on, on, on Twitter and we have a, a site called Quick Take that kind of does these uh, quick, you know, 30 second videos about a uh, story of the day that kind of can distills and condenses uh, big issues down into smaller bites. And uh, again, you know, I think that's a really valuable thing. Um, but again, I hope it's, uh, you know, sort of the gateway to, to even more. Mm -hmm. And this time is definitely an extremely divided time in our country. Do you think that journalism is, is needed more than ever? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, good, again, like good journalism, you know, d done the right way can really make a difference. Um, you know, I, you know, you wouldn't have had, 
you know, we wouldn't have learned about the president's, you know, impeachment about what you know the way he did with Ukraine if it wasn't for, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal breaking that story, for example. Um, yeah. And so, you know, like look at the, you know, going back in history, you know, the New York Times breaking the Pentagon Papers, I mean, just completely changed our perception of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you know, Watergate, you know, the Washington Post, you know, these are huge tectonic stories. Um, and, you know, I think done right, I mean, that's the best that journalism can be. And, you know, that's something that's needed, um, you know, in all times, but especially now with, it, with everything that's going on. But then in contrast, you have news outlets like OAN, who is kind of, ju- who is kind of just in the president's ear. And how is that affecting your job? Because a large, a large portion of Trump's base probably watches OAN. And so they're kind of not seeing the, they're not seeing what other people are seeing. Yeah, no, you hit on something really important there, which is that people are going into their own silos and sort of only uh, seeking out the viewpoints that uh, they want to hear. And, you know, you would hope that, I, I don't know what the answer is to, you know, and you know, sort of break the walls of, you know, polarization, but, um, you know, I, I think it's, at least like, you know, just speaking for myself, I found it valuable, you know, when I was younger, when I was first learning about politics to, you know, read about, you know, read people with all kinds of viewpoints. I mean, it was a different time in, you know, news journalism or in the news business. But, you know, I remember I would try to read the Washington Post. I grew up in the Washington area. And, you know, I read both the, you know, conservative columnists and the liberal columnists and, you know, decide like what you agree with. And, you know, the analog to that now is, you know, read, I mean, the Daily Coast blog and also read, you know, National Review. I mean, so just to pick two examples. I mean, I, I think that's, I do that now because I, you know, I like to see what's going on on both sides. And I think that it would be valuable if more people did that. And kind of, we've talked a lot about like the, the heavy duty stuff about covering the White House. Have you ever seen or have you ever attended the ceremony for the president, Presidential Award of Freedom? And if so, what was the most exciting uh, one that you've attended? Wow, yeah, I have. Um, you're putting me on the spot because I'd have to think back. But um, I mean, certainly, I, I think, you know, I, th- there's been some like really, I mean, I've seen like Medal, Medal of Honor ceremonies, like for, the, for mil- members of the military are always really emotional, um, just like to hear their stories. Um, as far as, I mean, I guess the one that like almost surprised me the most was when Obama gave it to Biden because mm-hmm. no one really saw that coming. And, and uh, just to see Biden's reaction like, I think it was like a really genuine, like reaction. You can, it was sort of, you saw the, the friend, even though they're very, two very different people, you saw the friendship they built over eight years in office. So seeing that Absolutely. at the end of the Obama administration was, was really interesting. And is that your favorite event to attend? What's your favorite event to attend as, as one of the perks of being a White House correspondent? I mean, personally, for me, my favorite event that I attended was the, uh, the Washington Nationals uh, championship celebration in, on, at the South Lawn of the White House. I'm a huge Nationals fan, and so uh, <laughs> those honestly, I mean, that was that was really cool. I mean, uh, just to see your favorite players up there, uh, you know, getting uh, getting an award, uh, celebrating their championship. Excuse me, with you know, you know, sort of mixing your your passion with your job, with your passion for your favorite team. It's hard to get better than that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Did you did you cover that? 
uh, their championship run at all, or did you attend any of the World Series games? I was at all three of the World Series games. I think I only I only missed one uh, of the Nationals playoff home playoff games. Wow. I, you know, my family's season ticket holder, and uh, so I went to all. The only one I missed was Game Four of the NLDS against the Dodgers. Um, but so I saw them clinch the pennant at, on home field. Unfortunately, they lost all three World Series games at home, as has as, as been well covered. And it was totally bizarre to see that go to all three games and lose all three. But it was still very cool to be at the World Series. And so uh, I'm, again, a like, diehard fan. So that was uh, just as far as like a personal highlight, that was very cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I was scrolling through your Twitter feed earlier, and I saw that you tweeted to your editor. Uh, it was a post of a certain amount of reporters being trapped in the Orlando for, for the NBA. And I saw you, I saw you tweeted to your, uh, to your editor, like, Oh, can I go? Um, is there any chance that's going to happen or no? No, no. <laughs> I think I was completely joking around, <laughs> just giving him a hard time basically. But, uh, uh, no, no, I, I think, uh, if we were to send anyone to that, it would be someone else on a different team. There's plenty of news for us to cover at the White House. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you for spending some time with us. Do you have anything else to add? No, I mean, just, uh, you know, congrats on the podcast. And uh, I'm glad that you guys are interested in the news and the current events. And I uh, hope you continue to grow your audience and, and share some great insight with people. So uh, congrats and good luck. Thank you. Noah, anything else? Nope. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for sure joining thing, us. Guys. Fifth episode of the Matt Levine, my generation podcast. Thank you everyone.